This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to Vio Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Douglas Impuga, and here's what's coming up. We're, we're here for a very simple reason, uh, because America and Africa's futures, their peoples, their prosperity, are linked. Uh, linked and joined as never before. That was U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in Abidjan, where he said that President Joe Biden's administration is committed to building ties with African governments. Also, the Group of 77 Summit has affirmed the group's commitment to advancing the prosperity of developing nations. And British Prime Minister Sunuk suffered a setback to plans to deport some asylum seekers to Rwanda. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Appreciate uh, particularly the leadership shown by Cote d'Ivoire in countering extremism uh, and violence. Um, we're announcing $45 billion in new funding uh, through the U.S. strategy to prevent conflict and promote stability for coastal West African states. With this new investment, the United States will invest in nearly $300 million. Today in Ivory Coast, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken pledged additional U.S. financing to help fight conflict and bring stability to coastal West Africa, where insecurity linked to Islamist extremism has increased in recent years. He spoke today after meeting with President Alassane Ouattara. Appreciate uh, particularly the leadership shown by Cote d'Ivoire in countering extremism uh, and violence. Um, we're announcing $45 billion in new funding uh, through the U.S. strategy to prevent conflict and promote stability for coastal West African states. With this new investment, the United States will invest in nearly $300 million just over the past two years in stability-focused assistance in coastal West Africa. Um, and we're also working to bolster uh, Cote d'Ivoire's security capacity. There's been an uh, increase in training multiplied 15 times, uh, training equipment for the military just over the, uh, the last year. We're expanding civilian forces' uh, uh, investment as well. Blinken is the second stop of his trip to Africa. He arrived in Ivory Coast financial capital, Abidjan, on Monday evening. Today, he said President Joe Biden's administration is committed to building ties with African governments. I'm here, as you know, as part of a four-country tour that took us uh, to Cabo Verde uh, yesterday here in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, and then on to Nigeria and to uh, Angola. And we're, we're here for a very simple reason, uh, because... America and Africa's futures, their peoples, their prosperity are linked, uh, linked and joined as never before. The top U.S. diplomat, a longtime soccer fan, also said he saw a bright football future for Ivory Coast, despite seeing the hosts of the Africa Cup of Nations suffer a crushing defeat. Blinken watched a critical match Monday night in Abidjan between the host and Equatorial Guinea, joining Ivory Coast politicians in a VIA box. But Ivory Coast went on to lose 4-0, leaving the team facing a group stage exit from the competition. Meeting today with President Ouattara, Blinken nonetheless was full of praise for the elephants, saying he saw a young team with enormous talent. Kenya says it wants to promote peace in East Africa and has no problems with neighboring countries. 
At the same time, there are unde undeniable signs of diplomatic strains with at least four neighbors, including two that recently recalled the ambassadors from Nairobi. Muhammad Yusuf reports from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Kenya's effort to assert itself as a regional political force and economic hub in Eastern Africa is not going over well with some of its neighbors. The Democratic Republic of Congo and Sudan recall their ambassadors after their governments accused Kenya of hosting and dealing with their country's opposition groups in Nairobi. Uganda, meanwhile, recently took Kenya to an East African court in Tanzania over an oil distribution dispute. The case is about Kenya not allowing Ugandan government oil marketers to operate within its borders. This comes after Uganda discontinued the previous open tender system for purchasing petroleum products from Kenya. Also, Tanzania banned Kenya Airways flights from Nairobi to Dar es Salaam last week because Kenya allegedly denied permission for Tanzania's national carrier to operate cargo flights to Nairobi. The ban was lifted after discussions between the foreign affairs ministers of the two countries. Kenyan Foreign Minister Musalia Mudavadi said Sunday that his country is not at war with its neighbors and wants to bring peace to the region. Mudavadi says some states are vulnerable, others are in conflict, and our President William Samoy Ruto is on the front line making sure peace returns in these countries. He says the wars in those countries will affect our country too. Kenya has come under criticism from some Africans and its own citizens on how the government is handling engagements with other states. International relations expert Kizito Sabala says the diplomatic spots are growing out of countries trying to counter Kenya's influence. The reform is going to be a tug of war of what Kenya tries to do from the neighbors. From my point of view, I don't think there is really something very serious to, to, to worry about. These are things that will continue to come as Kenya tries to assert itself as a regional power and the other countries will try to find any leverage to use it in order to bring that, uh, that down. Kenyan President Ruto, who came to power more than a year ago, has met several heads of state in Africa, including his neighbours, promising to help solve Africa's chronic problems of conflict and hunger and to bring economic development. Sabala says such assertiveness from a new leader will get pushback. They are reacting the way they are reacting because I think in Nairobi we have a new president who is very assertive and who, who seems to be projecting this to the region. And therefore, I think that in itself uh, seems to be telling them, no, 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 uh, let, let's put the stop here. But uh, I think with the time, we'll just get used to our, the way our president is doing things. And uh, that, that's fine. I don't think it's a big, big issue to worry about. Experts urge Kenya to handle the conflict in Congo cautiously, especially regarding rebel groups that have contributed to the country's instability. They also want Kenya to refrain from taking sides in the Sudan conflict, which has pitted the country's armed forces and paramilitary rapid support forces against each other. Mohamed Yusuf, VOA News, Nairobi. The European Council has imposed sanctions on entities accused of excavating the conflict in Sudan. 
The targets include two companies involved in the production of weapons and vehicles for the Sudan Armed Forces, or SAF, along with Zadna International Company for Investment Limited, controlled by the Army. Additionally, three companies procuring military equipment for the Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, RSF, have been hit with sanctions too and face asset freezes. The provision of funds or economic resources to them, directly or indirectly, is prohibited. This move by the Council mirrors actions taken by the U.S. in June, which imposed the first sanctions related to the Sudan conflict by targeting two farms associated with the SAF and the RSF. The U.K. followed suit implementing similar measures against businesses linked to Sudanese military groups. Despite international efforts to establish a lasting ceasefire, the conflict in Sudan has persisted since April. It initially erupted over an internationally supported plan to integrate the RSF into the army and initiate a transition towards elections. According to the United Nations, the ongoing violence in Sudan has resulted in over 12,000 casualties and displaced more than 7 million people. Former U.S. President Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nick Haley are facing off Tuesday in a Republican primary election in the northeast state of New Hampshire. Trump aims to carry momentum from a win last week in Iowa, and Haley is trying to earn a boost for her campaign to be the party's nominee in the November general election. VOA correspondent Carolyn Presuti has been at the polling station in Bedford, New Hampshire, and I have her on the line now to talk about what's going on. Hi, Carolyn. Hi. Well, hello to you. Yeah, I, I am uh, currently at Bedford High School, and that is in Bedford, New Hampshire, where they have 15,600 registered voters. Voters have been coming in at a steady stream for the last four hours. So they have had 3,000 votes. But, you know, the, the real uh, key to this election will be the undecided voters. In my precinct where I'm standing right now, they have 6,000 undeclared voters, which means they can choose a Republican ballot or a Democratic ballot to vote on. So many are choosing the Republican ballot. And between, as you mentioned, the former President Donald Trump and former U.N. Ambassador and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Incidentally, Nikki Haley showed up at this precinct about half an hour ago. I got to talk to her after how she thought the votes were going, and she said, this is what Election Day is all about, democracy, freedom, and people going and showing the power of their voice. What uh, she's hoping for? Oh, I don't know if you can hear that. Can you hear that uh, cheering in the background? And yes. And the horn, that means mm-hmm. a brand-new voter just cast their ballot. So that's someone who is voting in their very first election of their life, and they always celebrated here at this precinct. But uh, Haley is counting on the undeclared voters because, as you know, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis dropped out of the race this week. And so many of his votes went toward Donald Trump, whom he endorsed. So Haley is counting on the undeclared voters who are unsure. Maybe they don't want four more years of, again, a, a Trump presidency, or maybe they're just trying to choose between the two because it is a two-person race now. So when I asked her that, I asked her, you know, what do you think of the undeclared voters? Uh, what are you saying to them? She chose to take a selfie. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. but um, 
But we do know that her campaign is certainly counting on that. I see. Uh, candidates aside, what are people telling you? How is the mood? Are they excited about this race? They are very excited. You know, New Hampshire people are very independent and they're very proud that they are the first primary in the nation. So they are expected to come out in full force today. I can tell you it's very crowded here right now, people mm-hmm. voting. There are lines all around me. And actually, when we went to the rallies, we saw that same enthusiasm. Uh, we were at a Trump rally where the, uh, the, the line just wrapped around the block, and people had been in line for hours and hours to try to get in. It was, was really frigid temperatures, too, but they didn't mind that. They were standing in line to hear Donald Trump. Last night, we were at a Haley rally, and they had to turn away maybe about 100, 150 people because they just didn't have space for them in the room. So, yes, these voters are energized. They, they like, they're very proud of the fact that they are the first primary in the nation, and they can certainly turn this around. A lot of analysts say this is make or break for Nikki Haley. So after this primary, we then go to South Carolina, where uh, Nikki Haley used to be the governor. So she isn't quite leading in South Carolina, so it was really going to depend on how she does in New Hampshire, if that gives her the bump then to give her the momentum to go into South Carolina and the subsequent state. I see. Uh, Republicans aside, Democrats also hold a primary today, but Joe Biden's name won't be on the ballot. How are people taking that? I know a lot of people are very surprised at that, and it's a quirky quirky result of the National Democratic Party deciding to switch the calendar. So when I say this is the first primary in the nation, typically it was the first primary for both Republicans and Democrats. But the National Democratic Party decided that they wanted to move the first primary to South Carolina because they liked more diversity in the voters there, and they thought that Joe Biden would get a higher amount of voters for his entry into the 2024 election. Well, like I mentioned, the the people of of New Hampshire are very proud of that historic designation. So they said, no way, we're still holding the election. So they went forward with the election, but of course, without Joe Biden on the ballot. So a lot of the allies of Biden then started a write-in campaign. And we've seen these signs in many cities as we drive around New Hampshire. We talk to a lot of people, and they say, we have the excitement. We're trying to teach people to write in his name on that bottom line. So what you see on the ballot are a lot of names of people who are running on the Democratic ticket, but sort of unknown names. And then at the bottom, there's an empty line. And so voters must write in the name of Joe Biden in order for it to count. Now, he is expected to win the primary here. But the question that most analysts are are going to be faced with is how much and what does that mean going forward for Joe Biden? Thanks very much for joining us, Carolyn. Donald Trump's victory in the Republican Iowa caucus delivered a wake-up call to America's European allies. Questioned on the possibility of a Trump comeback Wednesday, French President Emmanuel Macron said he would pursue dialogue with whomever is elected in November. Macron said that the United States shares French values, but it's a democracy that is also going through a crisis whose top priority is its own interest, and secondly, the Chinese issue.
The summit of the group of 77 nations wrapped up yesterday in Kampala, Uganda, with the lengthy statement affirming the group's commitment to advancing the prosperity of developing nations. In his speech at the gathering, Uganda's president, Yoweri Museveni, said he would work over the coming years to advance sustainable development. Museveni takes up the rotating presidency of the G77 for this year. News reports say, among other things, Museveni said nations in Africa are working to enhance trade, not just among themselves, but also with other nations that are part of the G77 and the non-aligned movement. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres encouraged the G77 members and other developing nations to push for reform of multilateral institutions to better serve all nations. For instance, the UN website reports he said the UN Security Council needs to be reformed as it's often paralyzed by geopolitical divisions. In the closing statement, the G77 nations called for reforms to international lending and multilateral financial institutions to ease the debt burden of many developing nations. The statement also widely condemned Israel for its war on Hamas militants in Gaza. Meanwhile, American allies in Europe are debating how to prepare for a possible second presidential term for Donald Trump after he secured a record win at the Iowa Republican Caucus earlier this month, cementing his place as the current frontrunner to take on President Joe Biden in November's election. Henry Ridgewell reports from London. Donald Trump's victory in the Republican Iowa caucus delivered a wake-up call to America's European allies. Questioned on the possibility of a Trump comeback Wednesday, French President Emmanuel Macron said he would pursue dialogue with whomever is elected in November. Macron said that the United States shares French values, but it's a democracy that is also going through a crisis whose top priority is its own interest, and secondly, the Chinese issue. As Europeans, we must be lucid about this, he said. That's also why I want a stronger Europe that can defend itself and not depend on others. Macron and Trump had a fractious relationship. On the Iowa campaign trail this month, the former U.S. president appeared to mock the French leader's accent as he recalled discussions over trade tariffs. No, 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 you cannot do that, Donald. You cannot do that. It was a reminder of Trump's unconventional style. But Europe has bigger concerns than personality politics. With Russia's invasion of Ukraine descending into a bitter war of attrition, Kyiv urgently needs Western military aid. Trump has said he would seek an immediate peace deal between Ukraine and Russia. His Republican supporters in Congress are blocking about $50 billion of military assistance for Kyiv. NATO allies are worried that aid could dry up entirely. Fabrice Potier is a former head of policy planning at NATO. The US is, is paying a bit less than, than uh, half of, of that share, but the US has a very predominant, if not the lead role when it comes to the kind of strategic political questions on Ukraine. So losing the US in the sense of 
uh, having a U.S. president who might be actually counter to Ukraine's interest and to Europe's uh, interest uh, will be a major blow. European Union Trade Commissioner Thierry Breton said this month that Trump declared in 2020 that the U.S. would never help Europe if it came under attack and will leave NATO. Trump officials did not comment on Breton's claim. The former U.S. president frequently demanded that America's NATO allies spend more on their own defence. Many Europeans appear to have taken that message seriously. Alexander Stubb is a Finnish lawmaker and front-runner in the country's upcoming presidential election. We need a more European NATO. I think the Americans will not leave us alone, but it's always useful. Uh, to be prepared the situation whereby we have to take more responsibility of our own defence. And I think the Americans are right on that. Europe is investing more in defence, including ramping up ammunition and weapons production for Ukraine. But replacing the central role the US has assumed on Ukraine under President Biden would take time, something Kyiv doesn't have. Henry Ridgewell, VOA News, London. You are listening to African News Tonight. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VO radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. British Prime Minister Rish, Rish Shunak suffered a setback to his plans to deport some asylum seekers to Rwanda. This after Parliament's upper chamber, the House of Lords, backed a largely symbolic motion to delay ratification of a treaty aimed at overcoming a legal block. Under the Rwandan plan, asylum seekers who arrived on England's southern coast in small inflatable boats would be sent to Rwanda. In an effort to overcome resistance from the courts, who have ruled the plan is unlawful, Britain signed a treaty last year with Rwanda in which it agreed to address safety concerns. The UK government is also trying to pass legislation that would block legal challenges to deportations. Reuters says although ministers could take steps to ignore the motion, lawmakers in the House of Lords backed it 214 votes to 171. The chamber is expected to debate the bill at the end of January, with crunch votes likely to come in March. The Lords are likely to add amendments to the legislation and could delay the bill for a year. Israeli officials say Hamas is still holding 136 Israelis who were taken hostage October 7th, the start of the war in Gaza. Families of some of those hostages are in the United States to raise awareness about an issue they fear has been fading since the collapse of a November ceasefire. VOA's Natasha Mogavaya has our story. Families of Israeli hostages came to the synagogue in the Pacific Northwest state of Washington to raise awareness of loved ones still being held captive by Hamas. 16-year-old Harel Sharabi traveled without her father, who is in Israel mourning his brother Yossi Sharabi, killed in captivity. She's hoping her other uncle, Eli, also hostage, survives. Our mission isn't done yet. We have to bring Eli home and Yossi's corpse home so we can have something to bury. We didn't even have a funeral because there's nothing to bury. Romy Cohen's twin brother, Nimrod Cohen, was also abducted. She fears people are starting to forget about those who were taken in the October 7 attack. 
people don't talk uh, enough about the hostages. Some even forgot. I mean, it's been three and a half months now, and for pe- for some people, it's like old news, and we feel it every day, every second. She and her father, Yuda Cohen, say outside of Israel, hostage families have seen both hatred and support, but not enough action. Our government is more focused on fighting, which, as we see, and after 107 days, it's not bringing us any of our uh, beloved ones back alive. More than 100 civilians abducted from Israel by Hamas were exchanged for Palestinian prisoners during a November ceasefire. There have been... And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Douglas Impuga in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, David Bundy, and our engineer, Odrias Riggs, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.